At this point in our series, we're up to the mid-Jurassic period, somewhere between 175 and 165 million years ago. It was a warm, lush, humid world, perfect for all the reptiles all over the place, and there were plenty of dinosaurs by then. The really famous ones hadn't shown up yet, but we did have all three of the first ones that were ever discovered. And people have been finding fossils forever, but always mistook what they were, imagining them to be dragons or cyclops or other such things. It's a shame that fossilization is so rare that many species might be known from a single individual implying many more that were never found at all. Yet for thousands of years, a lot of these fossils were deliberately destroyed, either out of fear or to grind them into Chinese medicine. So many paleontological treasures will never be known because they've been ruined out of ignorance. The first dinosaur ever identified as such was initially known from a fragment of a femur found in 1677, but Robert Plott, the guy who first described it, thought that it came from a race of giant men over 20 feet tall. How can he confuse a reptile bone with a human bone? Well, remember that the biggest reptile in the world today is a crocodile, and they didn't have a lot of those in 17th century England. They didn't have any giants either, but at least they had legends about them. No one had any clue about giant reptiles. In the early 1800s, that same femur was finally recognized to be reptilian and thus named Megalosaurus, which essentially means big-ass lizard. Remember the dragon that was slain by St. George? That was just a Libyan monitor lizard, only about six feet long. Big deal. St. George would have soiled his armor if he'd seen a Megalosaurus. The two other contemporary species were eventually associated with it, Hylaeosaurus, which I'll show you in a minute, and Iguanodon, so named because it was initially thought to look like a gigantic iguana. In 1841, Sir Richard Owen examined all three of these specimens and noticed common traits between them that are not shared with anything else. Thus, he classified them together, inventing the name dinosaur. And these first two were beyond anyone's understanding at that time. No one had ever seen anything like them, so early scientists literally didn't know what to make of them. Based on only a few fossil fragments at first, Owen ordered lifelike reconstructions of Megalosaurus and Iguanodon to be built at Crystal Palace Park in London. These now laughable reconstructions reflected how Owen imagined dinosaurs to be ponderous, plodding beasts. As more fossils were found, the image changed dramatically. Both animals were depicted as bipedal, standing fully upright like lizards sometimes do, or resting on their tails like kangaroos. But their tails don't actually bend that way. So now we understand them as walking in a more bird-like posture with their tails held aloft for balance. And there's one more correction needing to be made still, being that megalosaurs at least almost certainly had feathers. Many theropods did, including tiny wing feathers that were probably used for mating displays. Thus, megalosaurs would have looked and acted more like giant toothy birds of prey than the sluggish croco-badger that Owen imagined. Imagine going back in time to try to tell Robert Plott or Richard Owen that what they were really looking at was essentially a mythically huge flightless eagle with tiny wings and a long tail and crocodile teeth instead of a beak. Would that have been harder to believe than a race of giants? As for herbivores, not all of them were as big as Iguanodon. For example, there was at that time a group of skeletosaurs that were big by today's standards, being bigger than cattle, but they weren't very big by dinosaur standards. So how did these seemingly helpless plant eaters protect themselves from megalosaurs and other large predators of that time? Look at Lusitanosaurus, for example. They had knobby skin, full of hard nodules, even tougher than crocodile hide. In subsequent species to come later on, some of these nodules broadened into broad armor plates, while others lengthened into spikes. 
On Tuajangosaurus, for example, some of the spikes have flattened into bladed plates. On Kentrosaurus, only the front nodules are plates, while the ones in the back are still spikes. You can probably see where this is going. Wuhosaurus seems to have kept short bladed plates on its back, and the only actual spikes left are on its tail. Likewise, its more famous cousin, Stegosaurus, grew broad and proud dorsal plates, and again kept spikes only on the tail. This weaponized tip of the tail, like a medieval mace, is called a thagomizer. And this tradition was retained, or rather adopted, on the other side of the family tree as well. Polycanthus reversed this pattern with the forward nodules turning into spikes, which also start growing down the side of the animal. But the nodules toward the rear broadened into armor, except for the tail, which retained shorter blunted spikes. Hylaeosaurus was one of the first three dinosaur specimens examined by Richard Owen. Its spikes grew along its side and down the tail. The rest of these hardened nodules expanded into even thicker armor. Both animals could, and apparently did, use their tails as weapons, but not very efficiently. Not until Ankylosaurus reinvented its own thagomizer, reminiscent of a different kind of medieval mace. Astegosaurs are from the late Jurassic, Ankylosaurs are Cretaceous, but both have an obvious common ancestor that was already around at the time that we're talking about. The previous episode of the series concerned our placement in the clade of Cladotheres, and now we'll look at the subsets of that group. Unlike large dinosaurs, it's a lot harder to find fossils of small animals, and all our ancestors at that time were squirrel-sized or thereabouts. Dryolistoidea is considered basal to Zatheria, named for Dryolestes, a group identified by the size and shape of their molars. In fact, everything in this whole group is known almost exclusively by a few uniquely distinctive teeth and bits of jawbone. These depictions of what these animals should have looked like is based on educated guesses, the type of the teeth indicating what sort of lifestyle these things should have, but it's almost entirely speculative, because what we really know about this group is usually limited to just this. That, and we know that some of this lineage appeared in the Jurassic, others in the Cretaceous, and others lasted all the way until the Neogene period just a few million years ago. It had been suggested that marsupial moles might actually be the last surviving species of Meriodialistida, because one study seemed to show genetic inconsistencies with metatherians. However, as novel a notion as that is, a battery of other studies in phylogenetic data sets in morphology, physiology, mitochondrial and nuclear DNA and so forth all rebuke that. The most obvious issue with that is that marsupials have a unique method of reproduction which would not have evolved independently in two different lineages. Nor could placental mammals have evolved from marsupials, which would kind of have to be the case if this hypothesis were correct. So we can again safely say that the entire dryolistid collection is extinct and has been for at least a few million years. The most basal representatives of the sister clade of Zatheria are also known mostly from teeth and jaws and very few other bones. But one of the things we know about this group is that the young were typically born toothless. And that allows for another change that we expect to have occurred at this time. Remember that monotremes sweat milk through their skin, which the babies lap up. But it'd be much more efficient to suckle. And having predominantly toothless babies implies that maybe that's what they're doing. We know that milk ducts have to have led to developed teats by this point, which is just a focal point of the lactating glands. So even without fossil evidence of this titillating feature, there is still an indication of nipples. So if you have some, you may be tweaked to know that you're Zatharian. <laughs>